0: Mark chapter 1 again. And we'll read from chapter 1 and verse 14 all the way to chapter 2 and verse 13. It's a long passage to read. Let's read together from uh, verse 14. It says this Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one, having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed that they did detet- so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother in law was sick with a fever, lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door, and He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. In the early morning, when it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon, his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he came into the synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, to be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him immediately, sorry, sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pellet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pellet, and go home and he got up immediately picked up the pellet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying god saying we have never seen anything like this and he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them we trust that god will add blessing to the reading of his word let's give thanks and ask for his help again father in heaven this morning we ask you for help as we would come before the scriptures and father we pray that the spirit of god would have freedom in this moment, to speak to our hearts. Father, we pray that You would help us to put aside the distractions and the cares of the world and the life that we live outside these four walls. And Father, give our entire attention to what You would have to say to all of us. And we ask You this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well. In the text before us and down to the end of chapter three, Mark is presenting Jesus in a carefully arranged mixture of teaching and traveling and miracles. It's kind of necessary that we understand why miracles are placed where they are in Mark, not just in Mark, but all through the scriptures. The Holy Spirit, in his inspiring of the writing of scripture, placed the working of miracles and signs and wonders in specific and very key locations. Whenever there is a new era or a new unfolding within salvation history, there was a performing of miracles to show and display God's working and God's approval of it. For example, Moses performed signs and wonders in Pharaoh's court and the land of Egypt, marking the start of a new era in salvation history. Not error as in E-R-R-O-R, I mean... Era as an ERA, like a new time span, a new dispensation if you like. Um, Elijah and Elisha performed signs and wonders marking the start of a new time period in salvation history, the start of all the writing prophets. Jesus performed miracles and signs and wonders as the marking of a new time period in salvation history, the arrival of the Messiah and the full revelation of God in the person of Christ. Paul and the apostles perform miracles and signs and wonders as the marking of a new period in salvation history, the coming of the promised Holy Spirit in power and in permanence upon all those that trusted in Christ for salvation and repented of their sin. In the same manner, Mark has chosen and arranged the stories and teachings of Jesus for a specific purpose. You got to remember. The Gospels are not biographies. They're not given to tell you blow by blow everything that happened in the person's life from the beginning all the way to the end. Gospels are arranged materials given to introduce us to Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, in Mark's case, to awaken in us faith and repentance so that we become his disciples, and they're also given to teach us, well, the, the stories and teachings, they're given to teach us the way that we should follow Christ. So remember, gospel narratives are not biographies, they're carefully arranged material. Well, this week as I was thinking about the next passage and how long we've been in chapter 1 and kind of wanting to get through into chapter 2, and, and I was meditating on the whole section from verse 21 all the way down to 2 and verse 13. And it kind of occurred to me as I meditated along about it that the miracles that Jesus performs in this section of the text display an aspect of the gospel message. They're not simply random miracles thrown in. They're definitely part of the narrative. Like the miracles happen where, they, where Mark puts them. But they're there not just to show the glory of Jesus, although that would certainly be a, a valid and excellent reason. They're there to display an aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're there to display an effect, an outworking of the sufferings and death of Christ on the cross. So Mark includes them kind of like the ultimate sermon illustration. So Jesus is preaching, and then like as a sermon illustration, he performs a miracle that displays some aspect of what he's saying. Imagine, I could preach on uh, raising the dead, and I could all of a sudden raise it as an illustration. You'd You'd all had a... I'd have all your attention in a moment's notice, right? Well, Mark's kind of doing the same thing. He's showing Jesus teaching, and then he shows Him performing miracles, and those miracles each of them displays some aspect of the gospel truth of Christ dying on the cross, okay? Uh, The Bible says in Mark 2 and verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. This is Peter speaking on Pentecost morning. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, He did it, he performed those miracles to show that Jesus was approved of God, was displayed by God as the one that God had chosen, the one that God had brought forth. So Jesus' words are attested or approved by God with the signs and wonders. Now, if you're a Bible student, you like to mark your Bible up, you might look for patterns. I like to look for patterns of threes and patterns of different things um, events and sayings and so on if you look through this whole passage long enough you'll see that there are some interesting patterns here for example there is a pattern of jesus preaching and teaching and then performing miracles and then preaching and teaching and then performing some miracles they're not perfect patterns they're kind of like old-fashioned quilts they're, there's a pattern there but they're not exactly everyone exactly the same but there's definitely a pattern there. And it sort of shows us something. So looking at your Bibles, I'll show you. The first one happens in verses 21 to 28. First, Jesus is teaching the word in the synagogue. And then he performs three miracles. He casts out a demon in verses 23 to 25. He heals Peter's mother-in-law in verse 30. And in verse uh, the verse of that 32, 33 there... He heals many of the sick and many of the demons are cast out in that area. So He teaches, He performs miracles. The second one, verse 39, Jesus went out preaching the gospel throughout all Galilee. And what's He include with that? He cast out demons. And then in verses 40 to 44, He does something different again. He heals, or no, sorry, He doesn't heal. He cleanses a leper. He, he sees that leprosy done away with. Thirdly, third pattern, from 2 verses 1 to 2, Jesus is speaking the word to the people in the house, and they he does two miracles. He forgives sin, which is an incredible miracle by itself, and he restores the paralytic. Each of those miracles shows an aspect of what Christ accomplished on the cross. For example, in casting out a demon, Jesus shows that in the cross work, he delivered us out of the domain of darkness and he brought us into the kingdom of his dear son in healing peter's mother-in-law he shows us the power of the gospel alone to save he also shows the debilitating effects of sin and how jesus healing her it totally eradicates him she so healed She jumps up and she runs into new service and immediately she starts serving the people and looking after the guests in the house. She's completely and totally healed. The third one, cleansing a leper. That's a beautiful picture of Jesus' work on the cross to cleanse us completely from all the revolting, disgusting marks and signs of sin that fill our lives. You look around, it doesn't take very long to see the marks of sin in a sinner's life and wh- how it leaves them. I love the paralytic though. You know what that shows me? What's a paralyzed person? Spinal cord injury somehow and the, the spinal cord has become severed. He now has no feeling. He can't walk or whatever from either the waist down or possibly even from the neck down. Two things that are irre- irreparably broken and separated, Jesus with a we- with a word He heals them and joins them back together. What's it show us? We who were totally, irreparably separated from God have been reconciled in the cross work of Christ. They're not word for word kind of thing, but they're pictures, they're illustrations of what he's talking about when he preaches the gospel. And what I want to do this morning is, I want to focus, I was going to go through all four of those, But the more I started working on the first one, I realized there's just just too much in there we need to look at. So I want to look at just the first one. We probably won't look at all of them in the next couple of weeks. We'll probably look at this one and probably the one about the demon and the paralytic, and then we'll move on. We'll leave the middle bits out. But look, I want you to notice this. I want you to see in verses 21 to 28 how Jesus came and he died to destroy the works of the devil. Let's read it again. Verses 21 to 28. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. It's probably better he continued teaching. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately... The news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Now, what I've done in your little note sheets there is I've given you something a bit different than usual. I've given you kind of a Puritan sermon uh, way of doing it. What they would do, rather than having three points and a propositional statement and a conclusion, they would give you the text, they would give you the truth in the text, and then they would give you what they called the uses of that truth. Well, we call it application, right? So I've given you there simply the text, and what you can make notes about what you see as we go through that. And you, there's also the doctrine, what is the key teachings that we want to draw from that text. And then there's a couple of different applications, and we'll work our way through those. All right. First of all, notice the text. What's happening in the text? Jesus, as I said a minute ago, he wasn't just beginning to teach. The word is an imperative, active, in, sorry, an imperfect active indicative. What it means is he's carrying on doing something that he's already been doing. So it's probably better to read it that Jesus went into the synagogue and he continued. He went on teaching. He's teaching them there. Uh, from the context, we assume that he was continuing to teach and explain the gospel as he had in open air public preaching. Jesus' teaching, second of all, was contrasted quite severely with the scribes. Their teaching was very pedantic, it was very legalistic, little food to feed the souls. And what's most important, the old scribes and Pharisees, what they would do is, and you can actually watch them on TV doing this, they'll say, well, Rabbi Bin Yahad said this, and he'll quote some little thing, and then Rabbi Yitzraim said this, and he'll quote some little thing. And what they do is they quote all these old rabbis and scribes and scholars, and their teaching is just... Dry, it was dead. the poor people sitting there got no food to feed their souls. but it says about this about Jesus teaching that they were amazed. The word is dumbstruck. Literally, the, the words were just yanked out of their mouth. they had nothing to say. they're speechless. If it happened here in Australia they would say that he, they were gobsmacked. they just didn't know what to say. there's nothing they could respond. It was so amazing. it was so incredible, it was so full of authority. And that's the key thing. The scribes and Pharisees taught on the basis of somebody else's authority. But Jesus stood there that day with all those people in the synagogue and he taught them as one having authority. He had his own authority. And we get a beautiful illustration of this in the Sermon on the Mount. If You go back there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and you read what you're going to find. is a little pattern of sayings. Jesus will say, You have heard it said... But I say unto you. And he'll say something. You have heard it said this, but I say unto you. And when he says, but I say unto you, what he's using is the Old Testament prophets formula. Thus saith the Lord. And Jesus is saying, I say unto you. He's sitting in the synagogue here and he's teaching them as one having his own authority to teach and preach the word of God. I teach and preach because that's what God has called me to do. He's given me the Spirit of God to do it and the Word of God to which to teach from. Jesus could sit there and He could speak new Scripture simply because He was teaching it. And they're amazed by that. Then there's this bizarre scene where the demon-possessed man enters a synagogue. And I have to wonder, what drove the demon-possessed man to drive and steer that man into the synagogue? And the two of them come face to face. I want you to notice very carefully that when they're conversing back and forth, it's the demon that speaks, not the man. In fact, the man is really, it's his voice that's actually making the sounds. But he has no control over it, and he's not recorded as actually saying anything of his own volition. It's a demon speaking. Notice also, the love of Jesus for this poor man. Now you say, I read the text, I didn't see the word love anywhere in there. But you know what? There's Jesus, and he's teaching the people, and all the people of God are sitting around him. He doesn't go, wait a minute, I'll deal with you later. You know, He turns around right there in that moment, and he... Reaches out to him in a sense and he rebukes the demon in love for that man and in grace for that man. He rebukes the demon and he tells the demon to leave him. And he wants to set the man free. you ever been set free from something? Well, if you're a sinner and you're saved by grace, you've been set free from that for starters. Have you ever been stuck somewhere, snagged or caught up? I'm not the brightest guy. I'm not the brightest penny in the pile, right? And we're—I'm doing a fixed job, a a fixed carpentry job, and uh, we put the doors on and we put the little thingy in the door that actually closes the door and latches it, so you can't open the door. But we haven't put the handles on yet. And I got a phone call from Dev this week, and I went in the in the back room to answer the phone, and as I did, the wind slammed the door behind me, and I looked around. And I'm talking on the phone, and all I'm talking, I'm doing this. I'm looking everywhere in a room for some way to get myself out of the room. You're only grinning because you've done it too, right? Yeah. We've all done that once. And I was stuck. And the guys are out there, and the Tyler's working in the next room, and, and he's got his music up super loud. So I'm literally hammering on the door from the inside of that bedroom to get out. And when he opened the door and let me out, he's got kind of a grin on his face. What are you doing in here sort of thing? And, and I, I felt stupid. But you know, I, I really enjoyed seeing his appearing there to let me out of that spot. And Jesus, in love and in compassion and in grace for this man, cast the demon out of him. And we can see the love of the Savior for his people as he sees them in a desperate need, in a desperate circumstance, and he sets us free. Notice the love. Notice also the omnipotent power of Jesus to command and receive obedience from the demon. He commands him. And even though the demon convulses and fights hard against it, eventually he has no say in the matter and he leaves the man alone and the man is left lying there. I wonder what that man would have said as he lay there in a heap on the floor and the demon is gone. All the people are so amazed. They look at this and saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority He commands even unclean spirits and they obey Him. The sense behind that is if He can command obedience from the unclean spirits, then He has the authority to command us also. We recognize the incredible authority of Jesus. I well, you notice a very tragic lesson in the demon. We're going to pick up this a bit later as well, but let's just look at it for now for a minute. The demon knew who Jesus was. Look what he says, I know who you are. He recognized Him, but the demon was unrepentant and unsaved. The demon rightly ascribed to Jesus the title and recognition that He is the Holy One of God. And yet the demon was unrepentant and unsaved. Demons can't get saved, by the way. I'll I'll explain why in a sec. The demon obeyed jesus words albeit with great reluctance and struggle and chaos but he was still unrepentant and unsaved notice also the demon already knew his own fate look what he says have you come to destroy us he knows in the day to come the demons will be cast into the depths of hell and they'll be eternally destroyed at the authority and wrath of god demons Cannot be saved. But listen, there's a lesson for us in that. There's a lesson for us because it's possible for us to say, I know the Lord, and I do this, and I do that, and still not be saved. And I'm going to explain why a bit later. Demons, by the way, in case you didn't know this, can't be saved for this simple reason. They, like the angelic realm, are able to see all of God's glory, and all of God's beauty, and all of God's power, right in front of them. We on this earth can't see that and so by faith we accept and believe everything that demons can see physically or well physically as as demons can see because they don't have a physical body but they can see it and so there's no way they can exercise faith and because there's no way they can exercise faith they cannot please God and because they live in constant disobedience to God they cannot be saved but there's a lesson for us in that demon so then the second part, you know, Chief, what can we learn from this happening, this miracle? Number one, just remember the miracles that Jesus performs are attesting and displaying the truths of the gospel. The Bible teaches us that Satan has power and influence in the lives of men who are not converted and not regenerated. 1 John 3, verse 8 says this, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Then it goes on in in the latter part of the verse, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It lies under the influence of the evil one. That's the devil. So how is it... That we are under the influence of Satan. the Bible teaches us that all are sinners. Our first father, Adam, was tempted and he sinned against God. And we inherited from Adam a sin nature. We were born in sin. We are sin by nature. It's what's a part of us. We sin by choice. We choose to do it. If you give a, a little baby or a little toddler an opportunity to do what's right and what's wrong. It's amazing how often a little toddler will choose the wrong thing. They choose what they know they're not allowed to do. Okay? We sin because we like to sin. It's terribly sad, but we sin because we enjoy it. We get some sort of satisfaction out of it. The Romans 3 says this. Listen to what, he says in, what Paul says in Romans 3. He says, There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. He's not describing demons. He's describing us in our sinful condition. Romans 3.23 says this, and you probably know it already. For all have sinned and fall short, which means they fail to glorify God. Because we, like Adam, are subject to Satan's temptations, and because we yield to them and we commit sin, because we sin, even without the temptations of Satan. That's why the Bible says that all the world lies in the power and the influence of the wicked one. Ephesians 2, Paul is talking to Christians about their former unconverted lifestyle. And he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The idea of walk there is the word peripatale, it means to walk around, it means to live, and according to means in agreement with. So, we in our unconverted, unsaved lives, we lived in agreement with the prince of the power of the air. We lived in agreement with the course of this world which we just saw from 1 John. It all lies in the influence and power of the wicked one which is Satan himself. Listen. Satan and the demons in rebellion against God are sinners as we are yet, like I said before, without the possibility of redemption. Satan and all the demons hate us with an intense hatred. And you say, why would they hate us? We do the same things. Because unlike them, we are also subject to God's redemption. God can save us. God delights to save us. God will not save the demons because they sinned in face, in full view of the glory of God. And the good news, the great news, the truth we want to learn from this is this. Jesus Christ is the one that came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 again. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. In Colossians 1.13 it says that He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Listen. Talk about being set free. Christ died to set us free from the dominion of darkness. Jesus is preaching the Gospel to them. And this man comes in, possessed by a demon, and Jesus casts the demon out, and He shows in a beautiful display that one of the effects, one of the works of His work on the cross, is He set us free from the dominion of darkness. He died to set us free from the power and the influence of sin. And He died to set us free from the power and influence of Satan. Jesus casting out the demon of the man in the synagogue is an illustration of the work he did on the cross to destroy the works of the devil. Now, before I go too far, I'm not suggesting that all unbelievers are demon-possessed. That's not what I mean at all. What I mean is all unbelievers are under the influence and the dominion of darkness because they're all under the power and influence of sin. So what do we do with these truths? Well, if you're here this morning and uh, you know and understand Jesus' deliverance, if you're repenting of sin, if you're believing the gospel of God, if you're striving to follow Jesus, leaving everything behind, then listen this morning. You can rejoice. You can rejoice and give thanks, Christian. There is something to be excited about this morning. Melancholy. I'm not melancholy. I'm just sometimes serious. But you know what? It's something to be excited about. We can rejoice and give thanks that we have been rescued out from the power and authority of Satan and darkness. It's kind of like a man, drowning man, pulled out of the water, like a carpenter set free from his own self-imprisoned house. You know, he there's a joy there. He's thankful that he can get out and be free again. Rejoice, Christian. We have been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You and I are no longer under the influence of Satan, the wicked one. Rejoice, Christian. You have been set free. You and I must submit to God and resist the devil firm in our faith, and he will flee from us where he once had power and influence. Now he runs away when we stand firm, submitting to God and resisting His words. James 4 verse 7 tells us that, listen, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have the power of God filling us. We have the spirit of God in us to enable us to live this life rejecting and pushing away the influence of Satan. We're no longer under sin. That's a staggering truth. Stop and think about what that means for a second. We're no longer under the power and influence of sin. We can say no. We can walk away. We have the power of the Spirit of God living in us to enable us to follow Christ, obedient to everything He calls us to do. The Bible calls us to live as children of light. And Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of the world. Of life. Ephesians 5.8 says this, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The Bible also teaches that light has no fellowship with darkness. In 1 Corinthians 6.14 it says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship, what agreement has light with darkness. So we must, Christian, think of that man. Okay, there he is laying on the floor. And the demon's gone. All the people staring there amazed. Imagine if he started growling and snarling again. Imagine if he got up and started, like he was still demon-possessed. He'd say, dude, you're set free. You don't have to live that way. And he started reaching out and clawing people as if he was still demon-possessed. You'd think he's a madman. How many of us have been set free from sin, have been set free from the dominion of darkness and carry on living as if we're still there, still doing what we used to do, still enjoying and imbibing the old habits. We must stop living as if we were still under the power and authority of Satan. You claim to be a Christian? What's your claim this morning? Are you living, striving in the power of the Spirit of God to obey Christ? Are you living in an ongoing repentance of sin? You know what I discovered? Not so long ago, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more my sin makes me grieve. I don't know what it is. Look at some of the older saints and you hear the same thing. The the older they get, the longer they walk with the Lord, they feel like they're less and less holy, not more and more. And the more you grow in holiness and godliness and sanctification, the more your sin will bother you and destroy you and grieve you from the inside out. So you claim to be a Christian, are you living that way? Or are you claiming to be a Christian still behaving and acting just like the world? Remember this. The whole world lies in the wicked one. Christian, listen, you and I have no business trying to be like, trying to act like, and trying to sound like the world. If we do this something wrong, listen, don't buy into the error that says we must be like the world in order to have an influence on it for the sake of Christ and the gospel. The disciples had a tremendous influence and impact in their world because they were totally different. Light to what we are. We have the light of, we're the light of the world. We're light shining into the darkness. How can we become light? and become darkness in order to win the darkness over the light. It, it just doesn't make sense, does it? We're like, what, what similarity, what fellowship, what likeness does a flashlight have in a dark room? It doesn't. The flashlight brings light into the room and lights it all up. That's what our role is. Do not live as if you are still under the power and the influence of, of the devil and darkness, but live as disciples of Christ. Live as salt and light of God shining into the pitch black darkness of the world. Um, what about those who are sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I believe in Jesus, but you know I'm just not crazy about this idea of leaving everything behind to follow Him. My friends haven't left everything behind. My friends are still going the way they're going. And I want to be with them. I want to have fun with them. So here's the application to you. If you're sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I know Christ, I know the gospel, I'm sorry for my sin. I read my Bible and I pray every day. But there are some things about following Christ that are just a bit too radical for me. Listen to this warning from J.C. Ryle. Some of you may know the name of J.C. Ryle. He was a 19th century bishop from uh, England. And he said this, Mere intellectual knowledge of God is useless to save. Look again at the lesson of the demon. He knew God. <clears throat> he knew who He was. He rightly ascribed to Him who He was. He knew His own end and His own destruction. He knew everything about God. Listen, the demons know God and they're not saved. The demons believe and they're not saved. In James two nineteen, 19, the Bible says this. James 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The belie- demons also believe and shudder. How many of us shudder in our belief of God. How many of us tremble in our belief of God? The demons do that. Do you know that? But they're not saved. They don't know what it is to, to know the glories of salvation. Listen, knowing God, knowing who God is, will not save you. Knowing who Jesus is will not save you. Knowing all the Gospel verses of the Bible. If you can quote all of Romans, it won't save you. Listen, the Pharisees in the Old Testament... They knew all the Pentateuch. They knew most of the Old Testament off by heart, and they were not saved. Knowing gospel verses won't save you. Knowing all the theology and all the doctrine that you can find in Grudem or Burkoff or whoever else you want to read, it won't save you. Knowing all about Jesus. You can know every different fact and detail about what Jesus did and what Jesus said, and it won't save you. And here's the one that's sitting in my office on late Thursday night, preparing and writing. This is the one that got me. Knowing enough to preach great sermons in Jesus' name will not save you. Knowing enough to cast out demons in Jesus' name will not save you. Knowing enough to perform many miracles in Jesus' name. None of those will save you. What did Jesus say? Listen, this is probably one of the most chilling verses in the New Testament. Listen to this. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one to twenty three, not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day Lord Lord, do we not prophesy? That means preach in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. How many here has performed a miracle recently? Not me. How many here have cast out demons recently? Not me. You know what? He's saying, listen, this guy will come here and some of them will stand before God and say, we have done all these things. And Jesus will say to them, listen, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. That's sin. What's the difference? It's not merely knowing the Lord. Obviously, it includes that, but it doesn't stop there. It is also doing the will of God. Look at what Jesus said again in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In Mark 3. Jesus is going through all of Capernaum and Galilee. He's preaching the gospel. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's doing all this stuff. And his mother and his brothers hear about it They think, oh, he's lost his mind. What's going on? We always knew he was different. But now what? Look at this. And so they go running over to find him and bring him home. And they say to him, hey, Jesus, because they couldn't get in because of the crowd. They say, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says, he looks around, and he sees the disciples there, and he says this. Who are my brothers and my mother? Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother, and my sister. In other words, literally, whoever does God's will is my family. What then, beloved, is doing the will of God? And he's given it to us in Mark 1, 14 and 15. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. He says, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Doing the will of God is to repent of sin, is to believe in Jesus Christ and trust God to keep His promises. It's to leave everything behind and follow Christ. The true disciple of Jesus Christ lives striving according to the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to Christ. It's no longer, Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Let me ask you the question, the obvious question. Do you know the Lord? I said, yeah. Are you doing His will? Mm. That's a bit tougher, isn't it? You know what Jesus said? I told you this a couple times during the last couple of weeks, but I'll tell you again. One of the things that just staggered me and, and made me really stop and think is Jesus said one day, i don't do my own will i'm constantly seeking my father's will to do that i speak whatever the father gives me to speak all through the last couple of days my prayer has been this lord i want to do your will i want to preach the message that you want me to preach on sunday morning but it doesn't just stop there with the big spiritual things what about the little things lord what job should i do how often do we run out and get advice from our accountants and our lawyer and our banker and our best friend and all the, all the people we have? We get advice from all kinds of sources as to how we're going to live. Do we stop and search the scriptures and seek to find what God's will is? Are we like Jesus getting up early in the morning, going off to a place and communing with his father to know the will of his father for that day and the days ahead? Jesus said, listen, it's not just knowing me, it's whoever does the will of my Father. That's the one that has entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Knowing who God is is great, but it's doing the will of God as revealed in Scripture. That's what makes the difference. You're preaching a gospel of works, you might think. No, I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm preaching the reality of repent, believe, and follow. Putting my footsteps behind Christ and where He leads I go. Seeking His face and His will for every aspect, every part of my life. Submitting myself constantly to Jesus that I might follow Him. But what about the other group, the last group on the list? What if you are this morning sitting here and you refuse to repent of your sin? If you refuse to flat out refuse to believe the gospel, if you're refusing to follow Jesus Christ, then there is a warning that I must give you. Without the work of Christ on the cross applied to you, without the blood of Jesus Christ applied to you, you remain under the power and the influence of Satan and the domain of darkness. You remain there. In John 8, you read the whole chapter of John 8, a bunch of men and people come to Jesus, men and women, and it says that some of them came to believe in him and they begin to debate back and forth. And Jesus spins around and he starts to speak to them. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. In other words, well, he's speaking to false believers and saying, listen, even though you think you believe, even though you think you're following me, you're still of your father, the devil. You haven't truly come to faith and repentance and follow. Remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and he says, lord what must i do to inherit eternal life or have the kingdom of heaven I can't remember which one and jesus says keep all the law and he says all those i've kept since my youth and jesus looked at him and he says one more thing you lack he said go sell everything that you have and give all the money to the poor and come and follow me and you will have treasures in heaven and the man went away very sad you know why because he was unwilling to take that full step of obedience and trust Christ and follow Him regardless of what it cost Him or where it led Him. If you're sitting here this morning and you're refusing to believe in Jesus, you're refusing to follow Christ, then listen, you are still living in agreement with the Prince of the power of the air. You're still living in agreement with the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You are in grave danger. Having heard the message of the Gospel, when you stand before God, you will have no excuse, no recall, and no defense. Whatever you're standing there, what will God say? I sent a message. You heard it. You rejected it. And God will reject you forever. Without the blood of Christ applied to you, you are lost. Without the blood of Christ applied to you, you will be rejected. Without the blood of Christ applied to you, without turning to God for forgiveness of sin, without trusting and believing in God to keep His promises, without leaving everything behind to follow Christ, one day you will be damned to an eternal hell and forsaken of God. That's a chilling truth, isn't it? So what do you do? Look at the Lord Jesus in that passage. Look how He cast that demon. He had power and authority to cast the demon out of that man. He has power and authority to deliver you, you out of the dominion of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of His dear Son and and, and clothe you with new clothes, put a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet like the prodigal son. All those pictures of sonship and relationship restored. See the love and the grace of mercy of God extended towards you today. Remember this, the Old Testament? I discovered something really cool this week in one of my sermons, listening back and forth. And um, I think it was Joel Beakey. He said that on the, um, the mountaintop, and they're out there, and it's... Um, what's the mountain in that doesn't matter. They're up there receiving the law, the Ten Commandments. On top of the mountain, there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's flashes, and there's a great shaking of the ground. Sinai. That's right. Thank you. Mental block. Mount Sinai, all those things, the thunder claps, the lightning. We were standing in our front yard about a year ago, and uh, the lightning struck in the middle of the street. And the sound and the noise and the, the reverberation from that lightning striking so close, it just freaked us out. It was so violent. And we jumped. You see, why, why whenever God comes near to man is there thunder and lightning and all of those things? Why is all that massive shaking of the earth? It's all warning. Look out. Look out. Look out. God most holy is near. The people of Israel were so afraid of what they saw. They said, Moses, we can't go up on the mountain with you. You must go up for us and you must speak with God for us. Don't let God speak to us or we'll die. It'll scare us to death. And in that moment, they were absolutely terrified at God's presence. In the very end, in the last days, the great judgment throne is set up and God judges all the nations of the earth. You know what's missing in that scene? No thunder, no lightning, no shaking of the earth. They are face to face with God. And now they must deal with God and God will look at them and some will stand there if those in this room are rejecting Christ and rejecting their gospel, God will look at them and say, listen, depart. I never knew you. And they will be pushed away. And unlike fire in this age that gives light and heat, the fire of hell will give no light, but it will give much heat. I was reading last night, uh, sitting in my big chair reading Thomas Watson on the, the Ten Commandments. He was describing the kingdom of heaven. He was describing hell and what it's like. And he says there's never an end. There's, there's alleviation of pain in this world. We see pain come and pain go. But in hell, the pain never, never, ever, 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 ever ends. You say you're trying to scare people into repenting. If necessary, yes. But I want you to see the beauty and the love and the grace of God extended to you. He's saying, come to me today. Come and find forgiveness. Come and find restoration. Come and find sonship and a Father with me. Come and be restored to me. Know that your sins are forgiven. Step in behind Christ and follow Him. Walk with Him all the days of your life. So see the love and the grace and the mercy of God extended today towards you. See the horror, the horror of Christ hanging on a cross to suffer and to die for you to pay the penalty for your sin. Uh, Jerry Bridges, Deb reminded me this week that Jerry Bridges says we should preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. I think all of us should in our mind's eye with the Scriptures open before us, maybe on our knees, go and stand at the foot of the cross and look up. And there we see Jesus with the blood and the sweat and the tears. There we see Jesus. All the abuse and mockery and hatred poured out on Him. And there we realize that He went in our place. We need to repent and grieve over our sin. We need to trust God to keep His promises and forgive us. And we need to step in behind Christ and follow Him, striving to be obedient, to do God's will every step of the way from here to eternity. That's why the gospel must include the call to repent, to believe, and to follow. What are you going to do? You can walk out of here thinking nutcase from Canada. You can up there barking away about that stuff. Or you can turn around and say, you know what? The truth is right there in the Scripture in front of him, And you can begin to follow Christ and you can know what it is to be set free. You can sing that song we sang before. It is well with my soul. My sin, or oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give You thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we stop and think about that scene in the synagogue. And Jesus sitting in the middle and He's speaking the words of life. He's speaking the truths of the Gospel to them. And they're absolutely amazed. And they're thinking in their mind's eye, He speaks with, as one who has His own authority. And the demon-possessed man comes into the room and Jesus casts the demon out of him. And they realize in awestruck amazement that His teaching has authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and may depart. Father, this morning, for those of us who are believers in Christ, we give You thanks. Father, we rejoice this morning because You have set us free. You've taken us out of that dominion of darkness. you brought us into the dominion, the kingdom of Your Son. Father, You've given us shoes on our feet. You've given us a robe on our backs. You've given us a ring on our fingers. Father, you've called us sons and daughters, and we rejoice. We give you thanks. Father, we lift up our hearts and worship this morning because of what he has accomplished for us. Father, we give you thanks that our chains are gone and we have been set free. But Father, we look around and we see those who are still dragging their chains along behind them. And Father, it breaks our heart to realize that so many others are still chained up. And Father, we cry out to You this morning that You would rescue more. That You would use us to preach the Gospel. That You would use us to teach the Gospel. To spread the good news that Jesus Christ came and suffered and died. Father, to set us free. Father, help us not to be like the beggars outside the city wall stuffing their faces with food forgetting those inside the wall that were still starving still starving Father that scene reminds us that we have been given all the riches of glory you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places but father there are thousands literally millions in this city that don't know you Father, we cry out to You that You would use us, each of us, wherever we go, day by day, throughout the week, to spread the news of the Gospel, to talk about how Jesus has set us free. And Father, we ask You for help. Lord, I'm convinced in my own heart that there are some in this room this morning that have never confessed You as Savior, that have never trusted You, have never repented and grieved over their sin. And Father, I cry out to you that you would work on their hearts, that the Spirit of God would prov- would convict them and provoke them, and Father and draw them close. Father, show them through the eyes of faith the glories of Jesus and what He has accomplished for them. Father, we ask you for all these things, and we give you thanks in our Savior's name, because He alone deserves the praise. Amen.